All right. So uh, we're just going to dive in. You ready? Yeah, I'm, I'm, re- I'm ready. I was okay. born ready. Okay, I know. Hello, Secret Movie Clubbers. Welcome to Secret Movie Club Podcast 160. Uh, we we did it. We're uh, we're coming back to conversation. And uh, if you had to take a guess, who was going to be back first? Who do you think it would be? I actually think our audience would probably all get it right. Who is with us today? Oh, before you before we reveal that, I should tell you today, uh, Secret Movie Club Podcast 160, we are talking about the amazing documentary Crumb by Terry Zweigoff on underground American comic book artist Robert Crumb. And this is really part two of a pod we did about a year, year and a half ago. Uh, We're also going to dig into documentaries again, but this time I want to put the focus on docs that really unsettle you, uh, really dark documentaries. Uh, And we'll get into that in a second. Here it is. Who is with us today? Hello, America. Thought I was dead. Thought I was gone. Well, you know, I'm expendable. And I'm back to being censored again. So, yeah. You're none I'm of those. Alive. I don't think anybody thought you were dead because you're everywhere on social media. I know. And- I, know. I just wanted to say that because it sounded cool. That's why, you know, when 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 Rambo said it in First Blood Part 2, I was like, I'm expendable. Like, Yeah. <laughs> That's, that's, that's facts because he gets the bad guy you know it kills his girl dude but, you can know, you remind i have a rambo story for you uh this week by the time you hear this secret movie clubbers uh first off happy thanksgiving you're probably going to be sleeping off your turkey narcosis maybe you went to go see eli roth's thanksgiving at the vista the newly reopened vista maybe Which I saw twice already i want to hear about it we'll talk about it um the who knows what you're doing the day maybe you you did a black friday run and you came to within an inch of your life trying to reach for that 50 inch tv and you're healing up in a hospital on your medicare we don't know next week we return full throttle uh secret movie club full throttle december is actually going to be pretty intense um wednesday is our um open mic short night for november and i actually think i'm gonna show a movie uh that i cut uh just a little short it's just i had all this footage uh where i played around with the slow motion on my camera and it actually came out cool and i thought you know what i'm just gonna try to make a short every month uh we'll see if i hold to that uh but anyway uh, open mic short night november 2023 uh the theme is thanks Wednesday, November 29th at the Secret Movie Club Theater at 7.30 p.m. Thursday, November 30th on 35mm, one of my favorite unsung movies of the 1990s, the German film Run, Lola, Run by Tom Tickford. Uh, uh, incredible 80-minute film. If you've never seen it, Edwin, have you seen it? No, but I remember when you played the Vista. Um, I don't know what I was doing. I think I was in the lobby. <laughs> There you go. There's Edwin's ringing endorsement. But if you've never seen Run, Lola, Run, it's, it's I think, one of the most fun films that ever came out of the 90s. Basically, the movie stops, the movie starts and never stops. Lola gets a call from her criminal boyfriend, Manny, and he says, I got 20 minutes to find 100,000 Deutschmarks or gangsters are going to kill me. Uh, on Friday, we're almost sold out on this, uh, which I'm like, I don't know why I'm surprised, but famous skater Rick Charnosky made an incredible movie um, called Warm Blood. It took him nine years. He shot it on 16 millimeter. He was known for being a skater and making a lot of skate videos. 
Uh, and I'm sure this is all Rick and his team, but we are almost sold out on that. And Rick is going to be there uh, today to premiere his movie at the Secret Movie Club Theater, and he's going to do a Q&A. That is Friday, December 1st. And then uh, Saturday, December 2nd, uh, this took me a long time to put together. But uh, finally, we are doing Rear Window and Blue Velvet on 35 millimeter at the Million Dollar Theater. I was holding out announcing that because I did not want to do Blue Velvet digitally. I just did not. And we finally got a print, uh, interestingly, I, from the University of North Carolina where they shot the movie. They shot the movie in North Carolina. And so I think uh, De Laurentiis or somebody stored a print there when they finished shooting the movie. As always, you can write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. You can find out everything we're doing at secretmovieclub.com or just follow us on Eventbrite where we announce and launch all of our events. So moving on. Edwin, you ready to hear my Rambo story? Yes. Okay. <laughs> For a minute, I thought you paused. Uh, okay. So it's no, real no, simple. Like one of the things I like, although it can be really distracting on my phone, are those things when they find out you're into movies where it'll be like two minutes of an actor talking about some movie you liked and they'll show the, the text so you don't even need to hear it. So it was Stallone um, on Howard Stern. And I didn't know this. You probably knew this, Edwin. Stallone said that when he saw the first cut of First Blood, he actually like went outside. I'm sure he's being a little exaggerating a little, but he said he and his manager went outside. He almost threw up and he offered the studio to buy it back and burn the negative. And do you know why? Ooh. Why? He said in the first cut of the film, uh, he talked too much. The dialogue was awful. And he said that he had lines that he never liked where like he would talk to the sheriff and he would have lines. John Rambo would have lines like, have you seen Easy Rider? Well, I'm Easy Walker. He had lines oh like that. God. And so Stallone saw and he was like, I guess he, he, he said it was awful. So he uh, went back and the studio or whoever was like, no, no, we're not going to sell it back to you. And he said, OK. And it was three hours that the first cut was three hours. And he said, uh, please, 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 please cut out all of my dialogue and just have everybody else talk about me. If I can be silent and everybody else talks about John Rambo, it might work. Now, maybe Stallone has kind of taken some of the credit for editorial decisions. Usually when you see a three-hour cut, that means you're seeing a first cut. I doubt very highly they intended for First Blood to be three hours. But he yeah. said that uh, it worked only because they took out all of his dialogue. And he wanted that. I thought it was an interesting story. I heard the same story from another actor. Do you know who? Uh, Brian Dennehy? No. Uh, what other actor asked for all their dialogue to be taken out of the movie that made them famous? You want a hint? Yes. Okay. It was a movie from the early 1960s that revolutionized Westerns. Eastwood. Yes. Yep. He went to Italy uh, to do a fistful of dollars and he just didn't like any of his dialogue. And he told Sergio Leone, he's like, look, I'm good. Just take it all out. I don't want to say a lot. And, uh, wow. and Leone was like, uh, okay, uh, you're the lead. And he took it all out. And I think it's always a good lesson that sometimes you're more powerful if you say less. I mean, look at no, look at the, the Dodge trilogy. He's perfect without saying too much you know he's, he's 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 the good guy and the same thing with rambo like him saying all those lines like 
no, that sounds awful. But he made the correct choice by giving him less dialogue and showing him he's just, he just trying to survive. That's all he's trying to do. And the real true bad guys are the sheriff. And they have more dialogue. But he's out there. The war's out there. The one line, I'm glad they, they kept in. I'm pretty sure he always meant to keep it in when he goes up to Denny. He, like, let it go. Give you all you will believe. Boom. He just starts breaking down crying. That's powerful. That's great. Was Rambo's father a frog? That's how Stallone talks, man. That's how he talks in the movie, right? I'm just repeating the lines he said in the picture. Okay, okay. Got it, got it. All right. So the, the topic today is the incredible 1990s documentary, Crumb, about underground comic book artist R. Crumb, Robert Crumb, who actually now is becoming a little less uh, and less known, unfortunately. And I was a kid, a teenager in the 90s. I knew who he was because a, lo a lot of people would go buy his underground comics. But anyway... Uh, Robert Crumb is very famous for these rock albums he did in the 1960s for Fritz the Cat, which Ralph Bakshi animated into one of the first X-rated cartoon animated features. He's known for um, all of his underground comics, Zap comics. And his friend, Terry Zweigoff, who they were in a band together, uh, spent years making a documentary on him. And uh, the reason I wanted to talk about it today is I remember that documentary when I was your age, Edwin, as just being hilarious and amazing. When when we watched it again with your friend, it was Kyle, devastating. It was, yeah. devastating. It was and, very devastating. And I I just had not processed how that movie is about how dysfunctional Crumb's family is, um, and how consequently how dysfunctional he is. But he 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 kind of survives because he can make a living. But his brothers uh, can't socialize at all. So uh, let me throw it to you. Uh, I, I guess I'll just wrap up my intro by saying that Crumb was huge because it, it launched Terry Zweigoff, who would actually go on to do features, not documentaries. And he would do one of my favorite comedies, Bad Santa, the theatrical version, right. not the not the dumb, unrated version. I hate when they do that. And they add footage that no one wanted to see, including the director. But um, right. he did Bad Santa. He did Art School Confidential, another comic book adaptation. Uh, and Zweigoff, um, Ghost World, uh, all kind of, in a weird way, crumb-related uh, in some way or another with that sensibility. Uh, and, you know, Ebert, Siskel, so many people called Crumb one of the greatest movies of that year. Uh, but anyway, Edwin, what are your thoughts on Crumb? Let's start there. Well, after seeing it again, on uh, see, seeing it on the big screen, well, played out very differently than I expected it to be. Uh, I I think it's the most saddest movie ever made about about Crumb's life. I I, I think the the saddest, the, the more the more deep and emotional part of the movie is his brother because he suffers from uh, what's what's that agoraphobia? I think so. Yeah, he won't go outside. Yeah. And I, I believe it, it. It took him a lot of convincing just to just to go in the house and just talk to him. But if, you know, and then later, my little spoiler, um, later at the end of the movie that the, they said that he committed suicide, like after they finished interviewing, I, I thought it was like very sad. Um, you know, Crum, Crum, Crum is a Crum is a strange cat, but a genius of, of what he does. And you know, I, I I feel like his true prime was in the sixties and seventies. But when he gets into the oh yeah, because they shot him mostly in the late eighties. So and th there's a scene in the movie where um he's wandering the streets of San Francisco, 
and and seeing everything that, that's changed, it's not there anymore, and then he just draws wherever he sees. And I, it's funny, I I went to San Francisco and I was like trying to like you know trying to see what what he saw. And uh, honestly, I I um yeah he, he all he, I think I I think he didn't like what he saw. I I think he like the whole environment changed from what he used to know. But um, did he go to hate Ashbury? Yes, yes, we did. Yes, we did. Because yes, that's did. where he used to hang out. That was sort of 1960s central. If you were yeah. in San Francisco in the 60s, early 70s, Grateful Dead, Janis Joplin, music, right. drugs, it's all hate Ashbury. Yeah, I went I went there and uh, I, I felt it. I felt the 60s. I, I, I think I think Crumb is truly in, in a fun, funny, talented, strange artist. Who created some of the best uh, comic book art, uh, comic book art of all time, and um, I would like to see it again, but um, probably at home. The theater was like too devastating; like everyone was just sad and depressed. But he, he, you know, yeah, it, was, it is what it, it is. I guess it was interesting because I can't remember now, unfortunately, if I saw Crumb in the theaters first or on video, and I wonder if mm. seeing it in the theater. I want to tell you I saw it in the theater because at that point I would always go to the movies and and I'd heard great things about right. them. But seeing it in the theater with a bunch of people, it amplified how sad his family was. And um, yeah. like oh, yeah. you said, I'm glad we showed it first. We showed it on a double bill with American Movie and American Movie was definitely the the, the one to show second because it brought everybody up. I remember there was one woman yeah. who, I mean, it was good for our sales, but she was just downing the rosé wine. And she was like, what the mm-hmm. F is this movie? More rosé. And her friends were like, uh, and then American Movie, she was like, oh, thank God. But, um, you know, for people who haven't seen Crumb, um, Robert Crumb's family he has sisters who didn't who refused to be in the movie. You don't even know what their viewpoint is. Uh, because one of the things right. that's controversial about Robert Crumb is that a lot of his comic book art has been criticized as being misogynistic towards women. And there certainly there certainly is a lot of um unsettling, problematic sexuality in Crumb's comic books. However, a lot of women, and there were women in the movie who described this. Because Crumb also shows the men as being pretty handicapped and, and uh, sexually, it, it, a lot of times he's turning the mirror on himself. So a lot of people feel that it's it's a little maybe extreme, even though the sexuality is problematic. But his sisters actually wanted money from him for what they called his crimes against women. Uh, the only people who appear in the movie are his three brothers. So he's one of uh, or two brothers. He's one of five. And as Edwin was talking about, his older brother, Charles, was an incredibly talented artist, incredibly talented comic book artist. But you could tell that Charles possibly was gay or at least bisexual. And it will just totally never was able to come out. Um, And I think um, in a sad turn of events, maybe because of that, never felt comfortable even leaving his house. Their father was clearly abusive. Uh, and alcoholic yeah. and dark. And so you could tell that all those children were um, in one way or another psychologically and physically abused by their father. And then the mother who's still around, she seems like a piece of work to me. She appears in the yeah. movie, but only after, if you read the the interviews with Swigoff, 
She was screaming at them to get out of the house. She was screaming at them not to turn on the lights. And look, I don't fault someone who says, I don't want to be in a movie. I don't want my life to be in a movie. Um, they said, though, that the moment they hit on the lights, she relaxed and started to take to it. But when she appears in the movie and she appears in the movie, she's chain smoking. It's hard to understand what she's saying. Uh, it seems like she's a pretty heavy drinker and pill popper, too. Um, and so Jeez. when you see those scenes, she's very suffocating to Charles and to Robert. And then the other brother, whose name I believe is Max, Max Crumb. I hope I'm not getting that wrong. Yeah. He lives in some kind of shanty hotel in San Francisco. He has been accused of molesting women on the San Francisco oh, tea. And he also is an incredibly talented artist. He's a painter, not a comic book artist, but a painter. But he too, like, he does these weird yoga things. He swallows string. Um, he has a weird diet. He clearly is not socialized. So when you watch the movie, <laughs> the irony of the film is that Robert Crumb, who is very talented and a lot of artists have really weird hangups, he seems to be the most normal of his brothers. He's married. He's got a son and a daughter. But even his marriage to his wife, and I found out that he was married to Eileen, his second wife, for like 40 years, 30, 40 years. Tell, and she just passed recently. Um, and he's very close to his daughter, Sophie. But it, the tragedy didn't stop. After that movie finished, his older son, Jesse, died in a car accident. So, Damn. yeah. It, it, so, Edwin, I'll throw this question to you. One of the things that I came out of Crumb thinking was, do you have to go through a lot of extreme life experience and tragedy to be a great artist? Uh, uh, because it seems like so many great artists, they have a lot of hangups. Uh, they, they're, not, they're not what you would call normal and socialized, although what do those words mean? But they don't seem to have lived particularly happy lives. Um, do you have any thought on right. that? Do you, do you think you have to be go through hell to be a good artist? Uh, what's that guy? I, I just I just saw the movie recently, Midnight in Paris. Um, Woody Allen, Hemingway. Oh, no, Hemingway. No, no, Hemingway, Hemingway, Hemingway. I don't know if it's true or not because I don't I don't know too much about that guy, but you know, because he he says something you know, like you know he's telling war stories. And, I mean I mean I mean some some artists got do do go through that 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 phase, you know. Um. I'm I'm trying to think of people that did, that did go through it. Um, well, I mean, I think you brought up. I mean, you already you said someone great, Hemingway. Uh, Hemingway, yeah, Hemingway was yeah. a. I mean, that's perfectly great example. Uh, he was an ambulance driver in World War One. Um, he, by all accounts, I'm a big Hemingway fan in terms of his short stories. Yeah. I found as I've gotten older, I I'm not as big a fan of his novels, although I think there's genius in his novels for sure. But his short stories, I think he's one of the best American short story writers we've ever had. Uh, but Hemingway, by all accounts, was actually in the closet. He was bisexual. And mm -hmm. he really couldn't deal with it because he was of that generation. So he would fight everybody. He would always like, that makes sense. yeah, he would, he would compensate for his bisexuality by just taking everybody on and fighting everybody. Um, but he was very complicated. He was a very complicated guy. And he 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 grew up in World War One, and then he was a war correspondent for the Spanish Civil War, and then World War Two, and uh, he saw a lot of hell. 
and he threw himself into hellish situations. So I, there's something, I think to some extent, and I don't know how to say this, but, but I think to some extent, you do have to experience some pretty tough things in life because it it does make you more aware of people's suffering, more aware of other people. And I do think it makes your art, uh, it, it gives your art a little more weight. Now, I don't want to be misunderstood. I don't think that means you've got to force yourself to, you know, be because some people do it the wrong way. I think you yeah. see a lot of people who they're like, okay, I'll be an alcoholic or I'm going to do drugs or I'm going to treat everybody horribly. Or That's not what I'm saying. You can't choose the times you're born into. Uh, you've just got to deal with the life you're given and make the most of it. I do think though, when I see someone like Crumb, you have to go, you have to say, I think his childhood probably created his art to some extent. Um, but but there you go. Uh, let's moving on, Edwin. The, the, so everybody see Crumb. It's it's incredible. It holds up. It, it's an incredible document. Although I would say in the post Me Too era, uh, it's interesting. I would be very curious to hear what uh, women think about it and if uh, what their thoughts are when they see him and if they think that his art uh, is still valid or if they think it's so broad. No, I mean, not valid. I'm, I'm framing it wrong. But I'd like to hear what what people of your generation, uh, men, women, LGBTQ+, plus, what they would think about Crumb's art. Because his, his art is very much white male art of the 60s and the 70s. And it would be interesting to hear new viewpoints on it. Uh, moving on, Edwin, uh, you know, like you said, when we saw Crumb, it got me thinking about how much I love documentaries and that we don't spend enough time on the podcast talking about documentaries as a genre. So number one, I wanna correct that by trying to have a commitment to at least one doc a month in 2024. I, I wanna mm. have a documentary corner. And because documentaries as a genre, to me, are as amazing as, as, amazing a genre as horror or action or um, comedy or whatever your favorite, uh, or sci-fi, whatever your favorite genre is. There are so many amazing documentaries, and we really need to talk about them as an equal, incredible genre. Love, but the the least favorite of mine is the salesman. <laughs> you don't like salesman? You're, you're familiar the, with the sales? Oh yeah, I've I seen don't. it. Yeah, the Maisel's documentary. It's good. I, I I just found it a little boring. I mean, it's a bunch of dudes trying to sell a sell a Bible, and that's about it. Um. It, it it is sort of the pressing CDs like you know these 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 uh, you know chain smoker dudes just going around town town to sell like sell a Bible like okay that's 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 great but it's like yeah, I think that's a great call Edwin what made you yeah. watch Salesman I would not peg you for someone who would watch Salesman well because I watched um uh, aren't they the same guys that made uh, Give Me Shelter. They are. Yeah. They're probably the three most famous docs are Salesman, Gimme Shelter, and Great Gardens. That's right, Great Gardens. That's right. I forgot about Great Gardens. I, that's a that's a quirky one, but <laughs> but no, Salesman is like uh, just it's really slow. You know, I mean, 
I like I I dig your style of like of them not talking to the camera to the documentary. They just they're just doing their own thing. They're they're just being like natural. But um, I I, I you know it's just it's just whatever. But my my two favorite documentaries, or my maybe a couple, are Robert Downey Jr.'s The Last Party, where he's giving the finger to everything he hates about you know government, uh, yuppies, Errol Mor- er- Errol Morris's uh, The Thin Blue Line. That I think is the greatest documentary ever made. And so interesting, and I, I you just mentioned yeah. those two. Um, you know, so salesmen, just to touch on that real briefly, and I, it, first off, I would recommend to our Secret Movie Club audience to watch Maisel's documentaries. What you were saying, Edwin, that style, which I think the Maisels are co-credited with uh, innovating in documentaries is Cinema Verite, where mm. in documentaries prior, there was always a narrator or usually a narrator. There were talking heads. They would cut to interviews. This style is still very prevalent. It's it's kind of the default documentary style. But the Maisels just let their subjects do the talking. So yeah. they don't, there's no narrator, there's no cutaway interviews. They just film their subjects and then they do this creative editing to create some kind of through line or or narrative. And in salesmen, as you said, I think salesmen's a great call because you feel these middle-aged guys, and you're like, man. They they're doing whatever they can to sell Bibles. And that yeah. doesn't look like a very fun life. No, it doesn't. They, they I think they talk about it in, in, in the movie, don't they? They do. Well, they, I don't even think they believe in the Bible. A lot of them. They're just there. to. They're there to try to get. I think the sales idea is that a lot of truly spiritual Christian religious people would be embarrassed not to buy a Bible. And so right. what they're trying to do is work on their guilt. But then I think they're also trying to sell them on, if I remember the movie correctly, they get their names in the Bibles and the Bible, it's like a Bible for life and they can pass the Bible down. And But but what the, the doc really does is show you that intersection of trying to sell a product in America and trying to exploit people's beliefs. Uh, and then also the, the the guys who are unhappy and single, living in hotels, smoking and drinking and trying to sell the Bibles. I, I mean, it's fascinating. Um, now, what I wanted to ask you was, though, the two movies you mentioned next, the Downey one, which I, I haven't seen, but I'd love to see, and the Thin Blue Line, which I have seen. The Downey one, is that a dark one? I thought that one was pretty funny. It's it it's 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 primarily funny, yeah. It's it's primarily just him just going around, uh, you know, interviewing pupils, uh, observing what he's seen. There, there's there's one part of the movie where he goes to Wall Street and uh, or the, the stock exchange and see all those dudes like bye bye. So he comes out and says that's the most obnoxious thing he's ever seen. A bunch of like evil yuppie sons of bitches you know doing what they're doing and he, he hated it he hated what he saw and um and there, there's there's one point where he does interview yeah, like, like wall street people and then he mentioned like yeah man cocaine's the way to go man to you know to get your boost up and stuff something like that um, wrong thing to tell robert and, he, and there's one, Jr. There's, in the 80s. yeah um <laughs> oh i know he, i mean he, he might have during that doc who knows 
Might there's, one, there's one part of that. He for no, sure. I, did. I don't know what he would have been doing. Um, he, he's talked about it. He uh, didn't yeah, kick sure. drugs until the nineties. Anyway, keep going. Um, I oh, he, he even um he interviews a Spike Lee, and uh, even shows him like uh, editing a Malcolm X. So that that's like whoa, that happened. Oh my god. He interviewed his father, uh, which is which is really you not know, very touching because you know, his father was everything to him, and um, he he interviews a bunch of other people. Well, you know, but, yeah, Edwin, um, you you make a really good point, which I think usually when people make a documentary, it's either because there's a fascinating character, like you know Ed Meyer making a documentary about you because you're a fascinating character, you yeah. deserve to have a doc made about you. Um, the uh -huh. You know, someone who's captivated. Everyone who meets you feels that. So that I mean, there's no surprise why you'd be a doc character. Um, or it's because people are unsettled and they want to get at the heart of something or a really fascinating story. And I would say that probably um, in the two other examples you mentioned, uh, Robert Downey Jr. was probably struggling with being of the generation that created uh, yuppies and Reagan capitalism and just cocaine and greed and dollars, like the Wolf of Wall Street generation, basically, yes, uh, right. where there there was not really just pure materialism. And that's that's not fair. That's not what the 80s were. But that was an aspect of the 80s. And uh, yeah. I, I'm sure that maybe Downey was Downey Jr. was struggling with that, especially because his dad was such a critic of it. You know, he had made Putney Swope and all these things about how the culture was moving towards mindless materialism in a sense um and then thin blue line is depressing even though it has a happy yeah, it is. i mean the, the for people who've never seen that that movie is incredible and errol morris does a look at a guy who's been in prison for a crime he always said he did not commit and it was earl morris's documentary that got him released i believe but he had been in prison for a long long i mean he had lost a lot of his life to a crime, and this has happened to too many people. Too many people went to prison on circumstantial evidence. And now in the age of DNA evidence, a lot of them are getting released and exonerated. But I mean, after spending 10, 20, 30 years in prison, it's pretty awful. I can't imagine what it would be like to spend 30 years of my life and then finally have the system say, oh, we were wrong. <laughs> you can go and you've lost 30 years of your life. I mean, that talk about dark, that's, that's a heavy thing to think about. I know, and uh, it's uh, you know the funny thing is um um I think uh the the studio wanted to get um wanted to get it nominated for an Academy Award for Best Documentary, but the Academy saw it as a fictional fictional movie because of the style Earl Morris was doing, so that like dequalifies it as a doc, but it, it but it actually is a documentary, but it's it's shot in a very you know, kind of like fe fe uh, a feature film uh, setting, but in reality, it's it's not supposed to be like that at all. It's just like show you an example how the killing took place and uh, all the little details around the movie, which I love about it. I I, I still think it's the, the greatest documentary ever made. It that, was that, that, does that kind of style. I mean, Edwin, I I don't mean to be complimenting you too much. I don't want this to go to your head, but I think you're killing it on this pod because you've actually brought up. Another style of documentary, which Errol Morris was another innovator of, which no. prior to Errol Morris, it was I almost looked at, look, and, and I'm not heavy in the doc world, so I actually don't want to talk like I'm an expert. So I'm going to back, I'm going to walk this back. But 
what Errol Morris did was he really leaned into recreating scenes uh, and he would shoot them and they'd look like they were a fictional movie. They'd be well lit, well acted, well designed. And he really leaned into that, into the thin blue line. And what that did was it really got people invested emotionally in the mystery. It removed some of the things that keep people at a distance in documentaries. I mean, they really got involved in the story. And a lot of people, as you said, the old guard was like, you can't do that. Like, that's fiction. You can't use fiction techniques in a documentary. And Earl Morris said, why? I think like all great artists, he was like, why can't I do that? Like, what's wrong with that? If the integrity is this really did happen. And uh, now people do it all the time. Um, yeah. And in, in fact, I'll, uh, I'll use you, Edwin, and I'm going to piggyback and name two that jumped to my mind, two of which I did, two that I think I'm going to show pretty soon. Um, one is one of my favorite movies of all time. It's in my top 50, but it is a documentary. And that's Claude Landsman's nine hour movie Shoah, uh, which came out in the 80s. And I remember when it came out, I was a kid. And to go see it like they would show it all in one day. Or you would see it in, in like three hour chunks across three days, which is, I think, how we're going to do it. We'll, we'll probably do it three days, three hours a day. Uh, but it's about the Holocaust. And it's no. really about, yeah, it's, but he made a decision and he shot so much footage that he kept releasing documentaries for the rest of his life from the footage he shot. Uh, but the nine hour doc that he made, Shoah, came out in like 85, 86. And basically, he made a decision I thought was brilliant. He decided to talk about the concentration camps and the, the genocide of European Jews at the hands of Hitler and the, the Nazis, but he didn't use any stock footage. He didn't use any photos from the time. He only used the interviews and footage he shot in the 60s and the 70s and the early 80s. That's it. After wow. the, Yeah. And you, you're like, well, how could that work? That can't be powerful. You're not going to show because you would think that the most powerful image would be the, the image of, you know, and these are horrible images. It's almost unspeakable to talk about. But if you've ever seen, I don't know, Edwin, have you ever seen the the whole actual Holocaust footage? I've seen pictures and stills of it. Yeah, it's unbearable. It's unbearable. Yeah. Um, you buy bodies piled up and being burned. Um, it's unbearable. George Stevens, who would go on to do movies like uh, Giant and um, Shane mm -hmm. and uh, uh, A Place in the Sun, he actually had a nervous breakdown. He shot that footage. He shot a lot of really? it. Really? Yeah, he was one of the five big filmmakers that went to war, John Ford, Frank Capra, John Huston, um, and Frank, uh, who am I missing? William Wyler. And George Stevens was shot. What's that? Jimmy Stewart. Yeah, Jimmy Stewart flew the missions. I mean, there were a lot of people, a lot of Hollywood went to war. I'm talking about directors, but I, I mean, Stewart is the highest ranking Hollywood uh, of anybody in Hollywood. Stewart to this day holds the highest rank. Nice. With nice. The, I mean, Jimmy, Jimmy Stewart. Uh, well, we'll, in fact, I'm going to write that. I think that's going to be a pod. And when I think you just created our last two pods of the year. Good. Good. I love because uh, we, we got to talk about Airport uh, 77, man. Yeah. That's exactly why we're going to do Jimmy Stack exactly, to talk man. about airports. <laughs> yes, but we can. We will. Um, but uh, yeah, Jimmy Stewart flew doesn't flew. He wasn't just in the plane uh, for good publicity. He was the pilot. He flew the bombing missions over Germany 
And I don't know how many he flew. I, I think dozens. It may have been hundreds. But he came back and he had a nervous breakdown. <laughs> Understandably, that's right. And, and it shows, and it's a wonderful life too. Oh, it does. I mean, he, he, he I mean, he, he has a nervous breakdown and he, the vertigo. The, what he brings to, I mean, those Anthony Mann westerns, like the Naked Spur. Jimmy Stewart comes back and he brings, he brings the heat. Jimmy was different pre World War II Jimmy and post World War II Jimmy. Well, we'll talk about it. Um, but anyway. Uh, I wanted to talk about Shoah just really briefly. So Lonsman makes this crazy decision, which is I'm not going to show the, any doc footage. I'm not going to show any photos. But what he does, uh, and it, he has this incredible thing where back in the 60s and 70s, Nazis were still alive. And they were only in their 60s. And he gets a Nazi commandant of a concentration camp to do a diagram on a chalkboard on how they tricked people to walk into the gas chambers. And and the Nazi commandant is laughing and explaining how he did it and explaining how they would trick people into thinking they were just taking showers and then they would kill women, men, and children and because they all thought they were taking showers. And and what it does is you, you cannot say the Holocaust didn't happen. You can't do it. You watch this guy and you're like, it happened. This guy clearly... And Lonsman has to pretend like he's not disgusted. You have to I'm see this. I'm surprised he didn't reach out and like beat the out of this guy. The look on Lonsman's face in the movie is what he wants to do is slit this guy's throat. Because he was a Jew. Lonsman was a Jew and he fought in the French resistance. I hope I'm not getting that wrong. I believe he was Jewish. I'm pretty sure he was Jewish. But um, he definitely was in the resistance. But uh I think Lonsman's decision and Edwin, this is the thing about documentaries. He could have, he could have slit that guy's throat and you know what? The guy deserved it. And look, I say this as a, I say this as somebody who believes judge not lest he be judged. Um, But I would understand why Lonsman would do that. But what's more important slitting one Nazi's throat or for all time getting footage that it really occurred that everyone will see for the rest of their lives. Showing the world really happened. I think getting the footage. Because look where we're at now. There are all these people saying it never happened. Uh, other doc I wanted to mention, I'll say it real quickly, is um, a recent one I love that we're going to show called The Act of Killing by jo- Joshua Oppenheimer, talking about heavy, complicated issues. Have you ever seen that one, Edwin? I've heard of it, but not seen this. Picture. Dude, it will blow your mind. In Indonesia in the 60s, uh, 50s and 60s, to get rid of communists, Basically, the government empowered people to just kill anybody they suspected of being a communist. And so all these people became folk heroes for going around and straight up murdering people. And uh, they're now heroes. They have parades for them in Indonesia. And this filmmaker, Joshua Oppenheimer, interviews one of these guys who killed dozens of people and then he recreates the killings at, in an Errol Morris style by recreating movie scenes. And he show, and all of the people who did it love being in the movie, so they agree to do it. But you realize that, that there's something wrong, that, that maybe a lot of innocent people were killed, and this was not the way to deal with communism in Indonesia. And then Joshua Oppenheimer made a second documentary, which I haven't seen, um, that, and I'm, I, that's supposed to be brilliant as well. Uh, the, it's something of vision, the clarity of vision or something. I've got to look it up, but, um, 
Anyway, we're going to show the act of killing. And I think what's unsettling about the act of killing is it's, and it's why I love the Irishman. Scorsese's the Irishman as well. It makes the point that normal sane people in a certain context, war, or a government saying it's okay to do it, or a society saying it's okay to do it, can be killers. And I think that everyone needs to be really humble because sometimes I think we say, well, killers are psychotic or killers are sociopaths. That's not me. But look at all the people who were killed in the United States by the Ku Klux Klan. And people in the Ku Klux Klan thought they were good people. Pop culture, final thoughts. Edwin. Oh, man, where do I, where do I begin? Well, I'm back at the Vista. Got a cool new uniform. There's no digital presentation at all. None of that. We don't believe in it. We just got film. We just got film. Um, uh, I've been watching more 70-millimeter movies. Uh, I got to go to the Egyptian again. Not a fan of the lobby and other places, but film presentation is amazing. I saw West Side Story there in the correct. Saw the Wild Bunch on seventy, which was amazing. Even though the they need to strike a new print for that movie because yeah, the they've been they've been play. running that one into the ground. Yeah, they have been. It's that's not good. It's not good. Um, yeah, it's just been I've been I've been running around doing stuff. Showing movies, trying to show movies. You know, I got to show I got to show Flash Gordon on sixty millimeter at a at a video store, uh, Be Kind Video, which they let me show. I got to show Incredible Melty Man on sixty millimeter at uh, Whammy uh, with my friend Kyle. It, that's his personal print, which he sold off to the Balboa Theater. But you know, I'm still his print. It was nice for us to get it back. And uh, yeah, I'm just um. Trying to figure out the next show, the the next the the next party. You know, the next- my pop culture final thoughts will be: I'm just going to make a comment on David Fincher's The Killer because I want to also say the most important thing as we head out, which is about my daughter being born and my wife and my family. Uh, but I watched David Fincher's The Killer partly with our newborn daughter, Ma Bell, mm-hmm. Sally, Geraldine Hamill in my arms, <laughs> but she's not going to remember it. I hope uh, taking some shifts at night, feeding her some formula, and I turn on The Killer. Uh, I liked it. I was so I I don't think it's Fincher's. I don't think it's one of his best, but I think that some what's interesting about reading some of the reviews, I liked it. I immediately took to it. And I actually thought the genius of the movie, I would put it in. um, I would say it's one of Fincher's better movies. Uh, I, I don't know exactly where I would rank it. It's not his best or in the top tier, which I would reserve for like Zodiac, Social Network, Gone Girl, maybe. But I would put it in the next tier. And yeah. uh, you probably know about it. It's based on a graphic novel. Uh, Michael Fassbender is a hired assassin. He botches a job in Paris. And when he goes home, uh, killers were hired to kill him. And instead, they really rough up his girlfriend. And so he basically goes to find out who did this and to clean it up. Uh, And so you follow this process. A lot of people in the reviews I read before I saw it were like, it's not as deep as it thinks it is. It's boring, it's dull. And I was like, I think you're missing the point. The point of the movie is that Fassbender's probably a sociopath. He's probably psychotic. He's a killer. 
And so his his inner monologue, which happens the whole movie, is repetitive and dull because he's a sociopath. Uh, and what's interesting is he's good at what he does, but the way that he would think, I think you're actually in the mind of somebody who has some mental health problems. And I actually thought it was hilarious. Uh, and I also have to say that there's a, a fight scene when he goes to Florida to fight that dude. That scene was straight up dope. Oh yeah, that scene is awesome. What did you think of the killer? I I I loved it. I just, just I I think it's just one of the best fastbend performances of all time. I I he really nailed it. Um, right right after they roughed up his girlfriend, and he goes on a very deep odyssey to track down these people and the people he meet and talks to spoilers stop i'm gonna say stuff okay he just kills there's no stopping him every every hitman kind of kind of lets them go but but this one no he kills and it's so funny during during q a he's uh, the fincher said that he was ready to make a Don Siegel movie. Oh yeah, for and sure. I totally see that now. He made his, he made his Don Siegel movie, and it's basically the killer, the the one he made in the sixties. That's, That's a really good point. There's, the there's a lot of uh, correlation to Lee Marvin and the way that Lee Marvin plays that role, because Lee Marvin's he's a hired killer and he's just going around like in that movie. Have you ever seen the killer? I want to know. Siegel. Ronald Reagan's the bad. Oh yeah, guy. Oh yeah, that's right. He slaps someone. He straight up. He slaps Angie Jitsen. Jesus Christ. Straight up. Wow, what a it's but but you wow you see the movie but but uh, I love Siegel. Um, I love that Fincher said that. I think that's a great comparison. And I'm not going to spoil it, and we're going to end it here. But and I don't want you to spoil it either. I also thought it was interesting how the movie ended because normally. In that kind of movie, the final confrontation would end differently. And it was interesting that the final confrontation in this movie defied your expectations. Oh, yeah. And I was like, I was like, huh, that's an interesting way to end it. But but I actually liked it. I, I like it. I think it's a good movie. I think it's one of Fincher's better movies. And I think it's going to age really yeah, well. Oh, yeah. And I think people, yeah, I think people who are like, it's boring, it's dull. I, I don't think you're, first off, I don't think that's right. Because I the whole movie I was loving Fincher and his style, but anyway, so let's wrap it up because you and I uh, we got to move on. Uh, n- thank you, Secret Movie Clubbers. There it is. The team is reassembling. Edwin, thank you for being back. Uh, yeah. Next week uh, will be Secret Movie Club Podcast One Sixty One. Edwin and I are going to talk about what makes a movie a masterpiece and what I feel. Edwin might disagree with me on this. The second part of it, which is what I call masterpiece inflation. One of the things that uh, we do at Secret Movie Club is we're posting online all the time. We have to do a lot of social media. Edwin does it. I do it. Uh, the the One of the things in Secret Movie Club is I, I read a lot of social media when I post of other rep theaters, other film organizations, other famous podcasters, other famous whatever, Xers or threaders, whatever, blah, 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 TikTokers. And everyone is always going like masterpiece, 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 masterwork, master performance. And I think that it's devaluing a little bit. Uh, It's devaluing the way we talk about cinema. So uh, Edwin and I are going to talk about what makes a masterpiece and masterpiece inflation. And that is Secret Movie Club Podcast 161. So I will leave it there. 
Edwin, it's wonderful to have you back as Thank always. Uh, I want uh, everyone go to secretmovieclub.com. You can see everything we're doing. Uh, go to Eventbrite. We have a whole raft of events next week uh, in about four days from when you listen to this. And I want to end by saying on November 3rd, Marta and I welcome, Marta did all the hard work. We welcomed our fourth child, Ma Bell, Sally, Geraldine Hamill, seven pounds, six ounces. Our family is Martha, me, our son, and three daughters. So now we are six. Uh, one of the reasons you haven't heard a podcast in the last few weeks is uh, we had an infant and we were getting ready for our December events. Um, Ma Bell, I love you. My, you know, you are my family is everything. You guys are my rock. And welcome to the family. And Martha, it's your birthday today, actually, as Edwin and I record this. So happy birthday to my wife, Martha, uh, for being such an incredible wife. Um, you always support me, uh, always. Uh, okay, guys, so that's it. Uh, we will see you next week. Uh, Edwin, it's wonderful to have you back. I love you, family. So, America.